So we will uh, be looking at the book of Jeremiah broadly today, but we uh, will be reading in just a moment Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 18. While you're turning there, though, I, I have to share with you, I had, a, I had a vision this morning, not from the Holy Spirit, I just had a vision this morning uh, that amused me to no end, thinking of what your congregational meeting a few weeks ago must have looked like, and I can just picture you sitting around thinking, yeah, we'll, we'll call the guy from Hawaii, but what can we do for his first Sunday that makes him know he is not in Hawaii anymore? Well, well played, Crossway, well played. All right, so let me uh, just read these verses from the prophet Jeremiah, and then we will pray and get into our sermon today. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the season where we can spend some time reflecting on Jesus coming into the world. As we've sung this morning, uh, this is a cause for joy. This is a cause for hope. God, I pray that as we spend time in your words today and we think about the promises that you make to us, it secures our reason for hope. God, we are grateful that you are a good God who loves us so deeply and who has plans for us that are better than we could make for ourselves. And God, we pray that you help us to press into you as we spend some time considering your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, no, that was weird. I didn't expect that to happen this weekend. Um, this month, as we lead up to Christmas, I thought that it would be good for us as a church to think about the topic of hope. And uh, so we'll be jumping around a little bit in a few different passages over the next couple of weeks, thinking about the topic of hope. Uh, but the snow got me thinking about when I was a kid, and I'm sure... Uh, some of you kids or grandkids have been excited about the potential for snow days. That is the, was always the great hope. Uh, I remember when I was younger, well, particularly when I was in high school, I hoped that I wouldn't have to go and I could sleep in all day. Um, when I was a little kid, I grew up in Boise, Idaho, actually. And so we usually had snow uh, for Christmas. It was usually a white Christmas um, in that season. Here, not so much. Although the last couple years, I know, there's been snow on Christmas or near Christmas Day for the last few years, which is interesting to think about in terms of just how we can get so caught up in visions of what a holiday is supposed to be like that we can build our own picture of what we um, want to see happen and we can place our hope in that so easily. Um, one of the movies that I remember watching as a kid growing up was called A Christmas Story. Has anybody ever seen A Christmas Story? 
Okay, if, if you haven't, never fear, it will be on cable TV pro- approximately 6,000 times between now and Christmas Day. Um, but it's this story of this little kid growing up in the 40s who wants nothing more for Christmas than a Red Ryder BB gun. And it is just the story of the anticipation and the buildup of this hope. And in some ways how it goes right and in some ways how it goes very, very wrong. And... Uh, Sometimes that's how hope works for us though, right? We sometimes put a lot of faith in the pictures that we create for ourselves about what the future ought to look like. And hope and faith get intertangled and entwined in ways that just make us um, experience those feelings emotionally, even though perhaps there's not as much sure footing underneath the building of that hope that we maybe ought to have. So, what does that have to do with these verses we just read a few minutes ago? How do they relate to the picture of hope that the Bible tells us? And how does that hope look different from the other possible sources of hope that we compete for in our beliefs, our trusts, our aspirations? Those are important questions for us to ask, aren't they? So Jeremiah lived actually at a a critical time in the history of God's people, as it turns out. He grew up in a small town outside of Jerusalem. He served as a priest in the temple, which means that his father was a priest, which means that his father's father was a priest. He grew up saturated in the worship of God in the temple in Jerusalem. And... Yet, God has even bigger plans for Jeremiah than that. God calls Jeremiah to be his spokesperson, his prophet to the Jewish people. And God promises him at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah to put his own words into Jeremiah's mouth, that he should speak boldly and with confidence, even to the kings and the priests in Jerusalem. And so if you're like me, The question immediately comes to mind, well, why would he need to be bold and confident if he's speaking the words of God himself? That's where the context of Jeremiah comes in. After God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet, he lives through the reign of five different kings who sit on the throne in Jerusalem. But these aren't just any kings. He serves the last five kings to lead God's people before disaster strikes and the nation is nearly wiped out by the armies of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. It's a pretty critical time to be speaking God's words to the people who are tasked with leading the nation. So, in case it's been a while since you've been in Sunday school and you've gone through all the kings, we'll do a quick review and I promise I'll keep it Hoppin. If you want to, though, I'd encourage you to read this week later on 2 Kings chapters 23 through 25, which covers the reigns of these five kings. So the first king who ruled from Jerusalem when Jeremiah became a prophet was named Josiah. And Josiah was actually the last good king that the Jews had in the Old Testament period. He initiated a reformation in their worship He brought back the study of God's word. He cleansed the country of idols. 
He tore down temples to other gods. And he put his hope in God's promises for Israel. But unfortunately, Josiah died in a battle against Egypt. Egypt was one of the two superpowers in the world at that time. And after that, things got pretty bad pretty fast. After Josiah was his son Jehoahaz, also known as Shalom. Now, these names get more complicated, so let's just call him King Two, okay? <laughs> King Two was in his early 20s and barely lasted three months before Egypt came and hauled him off in chains. God called him out for refusing to worship the Lord and instead turning to idols to save the people from destruction. He wasn't that great. Jehoiakim, king number three, was actually a puppet king chosen by Egypt. So he brought back idol worship. And when Jeremiah spoke against him, he mocked him. Jeremiah sent his prophecies even on a scroll to king number three, who as he read it would slice the sections off and burn them in a fire as a sign that he didn't want anything to do with what Jeremiah had to tell him. He was also shifty. So as soon as he thought that things were maybe going to go poorly for Egypt, he shifted his alliances to Babylon. But the king of Babylon still decided, in the midst of this battle between Egypt and Babylon, with Israel right in the middle, to take a bunch of Jews to Babylon as slaves. So king number three rebelled against Babylon too. And so the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had him killed. Next came his son, Jehoiachin, also called Kaniah, also called Jeconiah. Like I said, it gets complicated. King number four, right? He became a king at only 18 years of age. So getting to vote or join the army is nothing when you can become king of Israel at 18, apparently. He only lasted three months as well. Why? <laughs> Pretty close. King Nebuchadnezzar personally led his armies to Jerusalem to remove him from the throne, to steal everything from the temple, and carry king number four off to Babylon along with 10,000 other slaves. All of the best warriors, all of the best statesmen, all of the blacksmiths, all of the craftsmen, everyone of significance in Jerusalem carried off to be a slave in, in a different country. They were bleak days. King number five. This time, Babylon picked a king for Jerusalem, or what was left of it. His name was Zedekiah. And he was a weak, wishy-washy king, not knowing whether to listen to God's word from Jeremiah or to listen to his self-serving advisory council. And so he kept bouncing back and forth. Do I listen to Jeremiah, the prophet? Do I listen to all the guys who are telling me what they think that I want to hear? And ultimately, he too rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, thinking that he could improve the poor conditions in Jerusalem at least a little by showing some backbone and joining Egypt in battle, and he was wrong. The city fell again, 
And this time, the temple and the walls of Jerusalem are completely destroyed by a very angry and vengeful Nebuchadnezzar. So that's the context in which we find these verses. So here's another obvious question. Why should we care about these kings in Jerusalem 2,600 years ago? Is There you go, part of our history. Do we just say, well, it's in the Bible though, and therefore it's important, and move on? That doesn't feel satisfying to us, does it? We need to know how poorly things went for God's people when they put their hope in things other than God. Because we do the same thing, if we're honest. So what biblical hope is not is believing that God will bless our own dreams and plans. We constantly face temptation when it comes to hope, don't we? We hope that God will give us just enough money to be comfortable and get that house we always wanted. Or that God will give us just enough influence that we will always feel loved and respected by others. Or that God will give us just enough power that the people we think who should run things get elected. There's so many things that we can be tempted to believe about our dreams that we expect God will just bless for us because they seem so good to us. But that's what happened to these final kings in Jerusalem, isn't it? They thought that if they made the right alliances or they signed the right treaties, God would protect them. Or if they just held on to the nation's wealth, they would come out on top. Sometimes they didn't even put God into their hope at all. But they believed if they could just pray to the right idol, they would find prosperity and victory and peace. Here's the thing. Jeremiah saw it all coming, didn't he? God told him in advance that their hopes were misplaced and their plans were not God's plans for them at all. But nobody listened. What's interesting, though, is this doesn't just happen with the final kings in the days of Jerusalem. It's actually the story of God's people all the way through the Bible, sadly. Here are just a couple examples for us to consider. From 1 Samuel 8.4, it says that the, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, who was one of their judges, and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So the nation of Israel is led into the land that God promised to give them by God himself, who chased their enemies out before them. And then as God fulfills his promises, the people start placing their hopes in things other than God for their own prosperity and security and comfort. They thought they would be better off if they just lived like all the other people around them. They wanted a king just like all the other nations. Well, we just saw how that went. But in fact, it starts even earlier, doesn't it? 
before they had a king. And they only had these men like Samuel called judges who shared God's word and tried to uphold justice in their community. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in the story of God's people in the Old Testament, time and time again, they give in to the temptation to place hope in what was right in their own eyes. And if we're honest, don't we often do exactly the same thing? We might not literally pray to other gods, but I think if we really do some soul searching, we can identify some other idols of false hope that compete for our attention. Even just by finishing the sentence, if only. Give you some examples. If only I had the right job, then I would feel fulfilled. If only I could afford to live in a bigger house. If only my coworkers showed me more respect. If only I were married. If only I weren't married anymore. If only my political party could win the next election. If, if only I could have children. If only I could have different children. Right? It goes on and on. And not all of those are necessarily bad desires. Some of them are. But do they find their roots in the kind of hope that Scripture talks about? What is biblical hope? Biblical hope is believing that God will do exactly as he promises. It's the anticipation of God being faithful to what he tells us he is going to do. In other words, biblical hope is the steadfast expectation that God is always going to come through. Right? That's an important distinction, isn't it? Hope that originates in our wants instead of in the good and perfect and loving plan of God is no solid hope at all. Instead, that kind of hope can lead us into places of peril, places where the bottom can drop out. In Jeremiah's day, the people put their hope in building up their comfort and their wealth and their security, just like so many people in America do today. Their leaders place their hope in their own power and in their own policies and their own geopolitical maneuvering, just like politicians do today. But in the midst of it, in their thinking, God took such a back seat that they lost sight of true hope. They already knew that God had made them a people. They already knew that God had delivered them from slavery. They already knew that God had brought them into the land that he promised them. And instead of continuing to expect that he would do what he said he would do, they trusted in many lesser things. And their whole world became 
began to come crashing down around them. And in the midst of that disaster and that panic and that deep despair as they felt the hope melt away, as the armies of Babylon surround Jerusalem, Jeremiah offers us these verses, offered them these verses that offer real hope. Behold, the days are coming, declared the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. These pages are just really stuck together. All right. Those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Their experience of hardship and their loss of earthly hope in this season did not mean that God forgot what he had promised them. It did mean, however, that God refused to allow them to confuse their lesser hopes with the hope that he extended. So in this case, what is the specific promise? Right? Jeremiah says that a righteous branch of David will spring up. That might sound familiar if you know the Bible, but if you don't, that seems a little cryptic. But at that time, that phrase would have been crystal clear to God's people. They knew that David was the best king that they had had. A man after God's own heart. And God made a very specific promise to David, and by extension to all of God's people. God said to David, 1 Chronicles, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God promises his people a righteous king who would be a son to him and reign forever. A king who would make David as good as he was pale in comparison a king whose kingdom would never, ever come to an end. Imagine Jeremiah's audience hearing that. Their kings had failed. Their king's kingdom crumbled. Their kings were not righteous. Everything that they placed their hope in was dissolving before their eyes. All seemed lost. But God wanted them to understand that their hope rested firmly in him. The passage continues. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. In this moment of despair, as their city crumbles, as their temple is destroyed, God assures them that he is faithful. The message would have come through, I think, loud and clear that placing your hope elsewhere has brought nothing but disappointment and despair. But I am still for you. 
I still have plans for you even in this hard moment, this tragedy, this heartbreak, which cannot stop no matter how dire the circumstances is because I do what I promise to do. As you take the Bible as a whole, what's interesting about this prophecy of Jeremiah is that it actually has multiple horizons. So think for a minute about, say, going um, to Manchester and looking across the sound at the Seattle side, as we may very well do later today at Don and Linda's. And so you look across the water on a clear day and you see the shore on the Seattle side of the sound. But then beyond that, you see the foothills of the Cascades. That's another layer deeper. And then beyond that, you see the Cascades themselves. In a way, Jeremiah's prophecy works a little bit like that. And it all has to do with the idea of arrival. So one of the names for this season is Advent, right? Advent comes from a Latin word which means arrival. And as we think about arrival, it's a season for both reflection and anticipation. So the first horizon that eventually comes into view with this and affirms the hope that they have was Israel's eventual return from Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem, right? The temple gets rebuilt, the walls of Jerusalem get rebuilt. God begins to affirm the promise of Jerusalem's security. But there's another further horizon, isn't there? It also looks forward to a bigger arrival. The arrival of the true king. We celebrate Christmas as the arrival of the true king, don't we? Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the one who would sit on David's throne forever. Jesus is also the great high priest who would ensure there would always be sacrifice made on behalf of the people forever. Jesus, who himself came into Jerusalem to conquer. But he would lead by being a servant, wouldn't he? And he would be victorious by offering himself as that sacrifice to defeat the enemies of his people forever. And those enemies, Satan and sin and death, make the armies of Babylon pale in comparison. And yet Jesus overcomes them by his death and resurrection. So at Christmas, we reflect on this second horizon. We remember the arrival of the king. But we also await the arrival of the third horizon when the king comes again. We celebrate now, as we enter into the Christmas season, the arrival of the king that God had promised with the hope 
with the anticipation that when God says that king will come again to reign forever, that that, in fact, is our hope. That, in fact, is the foundation on which we can stand this Christmas and every Christmas. So as we approach this Christmas and over the next couple weeks, as we continue to explore this topic of hope together, I hope we can all together reflect on and anticipate together this glorious hope that God holds out for us in the coming of Christ. So I'd like to close with these words from Hebrews as we ponder that together. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let's read that together. Can you see that enough to read it? Okay, let's read that together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who, is, who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful. God, we, thankful that, we are thankful that when you promise something, it is assured. You have shown in your word time and time again that the promises that you make, you deliver upon. And we celebrate one of those biggest promises in the coming of Jesus that we celebrate in this Christmas season. And we look forward with confidence to the hope of Jesus coming again. We look forward with confidence to the truth that he in fact has dealt with our sins forever. We come in confidence with the hope that we by virtue of his love for us can be welcomed into your presence as your sons and daughters. God, I pray that as we celebrate in this Christmas season as a church together, you will continue to build our confidence in that hope so that it never wavers. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.